Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back for another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. And today's guest is Jackie Murray, um, who's the Deputy Challenge Director uh, for Faraday Battery Challenge um, at the Innovative UK which will make the UK the go-to place for world leading in vehicle battery technology by 2027. Um, They're funding research, innovation and scale-up facilities in the UK for the electrification of future vehicles and other applications that uh, support an uh, electrified economy. Um, This is to lower carbon and improve uh, air pollution and electrification um, which creating new opportunities and industries. Um, Jackie is a specialist in automated steels regulation and transformation change, having advanced materials background, um, having come having come from the UK um, steel industry. Um, so, really want to find out more from Jackie um, and what this Faraday. <laughs> that was easy for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> I want to find out, obviously, some more about this Faraday battery challenge. Um, so I'd like to welcome Jackie Murray. How are you doing, Jackie? Hi, yeah. Um, as we were just talking about the fact there's there's probably a few children running around in the background, a husband working away somewhere on advanced materials in the UK. So, yeah, it's a bit of a challenge, but uh, nice to be with you, Rob. Yeah, thank you very much for obviously taking the time during this uh, self-isolation lockdown uh to obviously um take part in this uh podcast so on this episode um can you give the audience a little bit about uh a background about yourself um your sort of career from when you um graduated to uh what obviously what you've been doing um to obviously present day and then i've got some questions obviously around the the um faraday battery challenge and obviously got a lot more questions around that so uh i'll hand it over to you so back to when I graduated, it's a bit of a long time ago now. So, uh, <laughs> you can condense it uh, if you want. Yeah. yeah, so I studied metallurgy actually in ceramics at Manchester. Um, and as I, when I was there, I had a fantastic year out on Stunthorpe Steelworks and all places. So my first, um, so yeah, my first um, job was, was up there uh, on the coke ovens. Um, but actually, uh, I spent 10 years in, in steel, e- ended up doing a lot on automotive steel, uh, mechanical properties and coatings. Um, and actually, after 10 years there, um, I then switched to the Environment Agency, um, particularly around regulation of industry and heavy industry like the steelworks. Um, so that was a real switch in careers. It gave me better flexibility uh, and kept me in touch. Um, I worked for the Environment Agency uh, Wales. I worked for Welsh Government and NRW in that field. Um, sorry, NRW's Natural Resources Wales. It's the equivalent of the EA uh, and Natural England in, in Wales. So, um, yeah, so I, so I came out of engineering, really. I went into regulation, um, learned a lot of uh, my way around government, uh, as well as sort of arm's length bodies. Um, and I guess taking a bit of an engineering approach to a lot of things, as well as enjoying different peoples, I sort of ended up... Um, I don't want to say as a problem solver, maybe. Uh, ended up doing a, a, a program um, on the internal drainage districts, which is all around the drainage districts, around uh, dis- drainage areas of Wales, right? So flooding, an area I never yeah. thought I would get into, to work with a lot of farmers. Uh, farmers sending me pictures of ditches. Uh, so my background's a little bit wide. wide. Um, I came to Innovate UK on advanced materials, as head of advanced materials, and, and, and came into Faraday very quickly. Uh, because materials are so prevalent uh, and what we're going to talk about today yeah. um, in the Faraday Battery Challenge. Yeah. So um, I've been doing this for the last three years, um, started off as interim director. Uh, really, that was kicking off all the government stuff that needed to happen. Um, and now uh, deputy director 
uh, with Tony Harper joining as challenge director from Jaguar Land Rover. Okay. And a great guy and a great team around me. Yeah. Can you just give the audience an overview of the, obviously, um, Faraday uh, Battery Challenge? Obviously, I've got a lot of questions that goes into it, but if you can just give the audience an overview of what this challenge is and what you're looking to obviously accomplish. So I guess uh, this is the government doing something different, right? So um, when you look at what we need to do for electrification, i.e. Um, switching the grid uh, to a lower carbon mix and then switching our transport to a different uh, format away from combustion uh, to reduce that uh, CO2 and reduce the um, pollution in, er in urban areas, um, you've got to really leap, right? You've got to do something completely different. Um, and what I really like is Faraday is actually a mission. So I could say, you know, as deputy director, my job is, you know, to, to control lots of things and get a lot of things to happen. The reality is my job is, is to really hold up and enable people to do, the, do um, to come with the solutions. And so the way we really look at it is we own the problem. So for, for, for batteries, it, the issues are around um, the cost of them. If you don't drive an electric vehicle now, one of the big things that will be stopping you is perhaps the cost. But we're seeing those costs coming down as the automotive industry really crack into gear in terms of reducing those costs down. It's the range of the vehicles, which is the energy density. It's the power density, which is the acceleration, but it also controls or influences the charging rate that you have. It's the um, uh, it's the safety as you're doing that, keeping you know faster charging and keeping those batteries safe uh, for consumers as, as you're charging them really quickly. Um, it's the predictability of them, right? So we've had 120 odd years of internal combustion engines. You take it into the garage and they plug it in and they give you a diagnostic on it. Um, how do we catch up that for for battery technology? So there's less moving parts in a battery, but the complexity of, of, of what the solutions in the future will be is changing and, and we're learning as we're going along. Um, we also need to be able to recycle them at the end of life. We need to operate them in at low temperatures, in high temperatures, um, and those things, if you've ever been out in the snow with a mobile phone, you know it drains incredibly quickly. Yeah. That definitely impacts electric vehicles too. Um, and it's things like... Um, how long the batteries are going to going to last um, uh, in that first life, and, and, and that feeds really into what you can then do with them when they're no longer used in the vehicle. So we look at this, and we've got this, and we know that's the problem, right? Um, and our job is really to uh, work with lots of companies in the UK um, to leap forward, and we do that um, through three main pillars in the Faraday Battery Challenge. So it's a £274 million programme. Uh, and yeah, in the last three years, I've spent that right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Tony uh, and my team, to be fair. Um, and actually what we've done is we, we've allocated it to £80 million into an institution, and that's the Faraday Institution. I'll talk a little bit about some of their work later. Yeah. Um, and really what they're doing is is they are a consortium in that, there's, there's seven key members of that consortium, but reality is we have 28 universities across the UK uh, coming together to solve the problems that industry need for that leap forward. What's exciting is the UK actually invented lithium-ion batteries in 1980. You might see the Nobel Prize last year with John Goodenough, that was in an Oxford laboratory, and Oxford obviously very key. Um, but we've we continue to invest in research since 1980. Yeah. So actually what you've got now is departments and universities working together, uh, a real um, feeling of 400, nearly 500 researchers coming together to really power up the UK in terms of what solutions, um, what problems uh, need solutions and what solutions they can actually uh, come to. So that's one pillar. The second pillar is our collaborative R&D. Uh, and that's really, uh, we take the research that sort of got to the end of the laboratory bench, right? And it's like, it's there, it's ready to go. Um, and what we want to do is take that laboratory and develop it with industrial partners, sometimes universities, sometimes research organizations, but actually quite often SMEs through to, uh, you know, big OEM giants. Um, and what you then have is this, this pocket sort of in, uh, in between the laboratory bench and the prototype. And that's got 88 million pounds worth of projects. There's 128 companies 
uh, and organisations working together on, uh, I think it's 63 different projects that we've got in training right now. Okay. Um, on everything uh, from different chemistries, uh, different computer modeling, different um, testing rigs, you name it, all the way through what you need to actually really get to a really decent prototype. Yeah. And then the third piece, and this for me is the exciting one, um, being a manufacturing engineer by background, I know you can take all that stuff and you can do all the trials, uh, but when you actually run um, something like batteries at manufacturing rates at really fast speed and you you need that atomic control. Uh, it changes everything. Quite often it goes a bit wrong. Um, and actually that's where the IP gets really valuable actually. Um, and so we have a £126 million pound, um, uh, facility. It's, it's a 200,000 square foot facility next to Coventry Airport. Right. Uh, Pretty long. And that facility, yeah, that facility uh, is impacted by COVID at the moment, but that's got world-class equipment that will have when it opens world-class equipment. Um, and it's in the commissioning stages right now. It was due to have been open this summer, um, but obviously shipping stuff in and getting people over to commission has hampered that. But that's such an exciting opportunity. That means companies can come with their prototypes, with their new chemistries, with their different configurations of batteries. They can try um, the, the battery as we all know, like the AA-shaped batteries, um, slightly different format, but that's what's in a Tesla. You can try your 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 batteries in that in that configuration, or you can try them in in pouch cells, which is what Nissan Leaf have in them, which they're kind of about the size of a little laptop, but they're um, they look a bit like they're wrapped in a, a, an aluminium pouch that you get for cat food or something. Oh, like that. Very high tech cat food, um, and actually, what you, so you can try all these things, but at full speed at manufacturing rate, and also um, in that space, what you can collaborate, you can you can run projects, you can commission it yourself, and 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 it's called the UK Battery Industrialisation Centre. It doesn't take IP, but it, it is a commercial entity. Um, but you can uh, meet partners there, and you can you can solve things. And actually, the bit for me is when it does go wrong that place is going to be manned by engineers who are training your staff, uh, but also have a huge ecosystem in the UK to help you solve those problems. So those three pillars, they're, they're very much around the R&D and innovation space. They are very much in that place. So that's the very battery challenge. But alongside me, because um, I sit in government, if I do my job right, um, I've got some fantastic partners who can also help me uh, get this to work. Yeah. Um, and actually the key one, for me, um, is actually the Advanced Propulsion Centre. So uh, they work very closely with UK BIC. They run their own competitions, very much in the uh, big numbers, working with getting uh, technologies into new vehicles. Um, but actually what they also do is um, th they've also got this billion pound fund that got announced last year called the Automotive Transformation Fund. Um, and that's really around the supply chain. So they're really specialists in understanding how supply chains and automotive function, how they come together, um, who's doing what, um, and actually where you could invest uh, government money in a capital sense rather than I, than I do just on research and innovation that could really shore up the UK. And the goal here really is not to compete with the Far East. People do get very confused about that, um, but actually to attract inward investment into manufacturing facilities in the UK. Uh, the UK at the moment produces about 1.5 million cars, uh, but we, we produce about 2.5 million engines. Okay. We're really good at making things go fast. Yeah. And the issue with internal combustion engines, because sometimes, I know I'm going on, Rob, but no, this, that's is, right. this is kind of fun. Um, the fun bit about internal combustion engines versus batteries that a lot of people don't really get is if I want a fast car and it's an internal combustion, the bigger the engine, the faster the car, right? Yeah. What that means though is when I'm cruising along, my engine's really inefficient. Whereas when I'm converting energy from a battery, I just convert what I need. Got you. Okay. Yeah. So there, 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 there's, a, there's an inherent deficiency in it, but it's new technology and there's automotive companies and also other vehicles are coming into this space and what they're working out with us is we know that premise holds true. How do we make this new technology get the um, efficiencies that come through making and building and, and, and creating new technologies hmm. and new products? So it's an interesting space. Yeah. How, how big is... 
I was to say, how big is your team there and what kind of people are in your team? Obviously, you mentioned there's obviously a lot of research and development type guys. I take there's engineers. Um, what, yeah, how big is your team and what kind of people are, is it made up of? So, it depends what you mean by my team. Yeah. So, um, it, there's all these teams. So, you have the Advanced Propulsion Centre. That's a fantastic, uh, that's actually a building up on work, up on work University. But actually, you've got about four or 500 uh, researchers working on projects with the Faraday Institution. But the institution itself is virtual. And I think it's got about 14 or 15 members of staff. Right, got you. So, that's the institution. Yeah. Uh, you have the Faraday Battery Challenge, and we're out of Innovate UK. Um, and you have myself and Tony. Uh, we have um, Tony was the uh, engineering director for R and D Jaguar Land Rover. Um, you have Anna, Dr. Anna Wise, who's a PhD uh, and bat- in battery chemistry and specialist in, in so scientist. Um, so two engineers and a scientist. Uh, we have um, others in the team have engineering, computer science um, background, but there's actually in total. I think about seven of us. Uh, I have a co-deputy director who works for EPSERC. She's, uh, she takes care of the funding routes and for, for all of the Faraday Institution. These are big government mechanisms that take a bit of wielding by us. Um, so actually, it's a really nice mix. On the whole, it's scientists and engineers. Um, UK Battery Industrialization Centre, uh, that's at the moment, I think, around 60 to 70 staff. Uh, and they are engineers and with some business yeah. development people, et cetera. But actually what's very few and far between, I'm trying to think of them, are civil servants is, is in pure civil servants. But, but, but even as we work like that, um, the civil service team in Bayes in particular, or in DEFRA, uh, or in OLAV, or others who may not have that background, we work incredibly closely with them because to get this off the ground and running and working well, actually would have worked Yeah, no, I could imagine. Um, what are the, sort of um, your predictions for the growth of the electric vehicle market and in the UK manufacturing and within the, obviously, supply chain? So um, what we use the Faraday Institution for as well is some techno-economic stuff. So um, for those tuning in, I would definitely recommend checking out their website. They they have some insights that is exactly around, uh, so insights for their newsletter um, and what, articles. And what's the website? Uh, Faraday Institution. Okay. Doc. Yeah, don't, you have to get it bang on. Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's a, 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 you get different things, but yeah, it, and it's... Um, it's a fantastic uh, group of people. In there is a guy called Stephen Gifford, who's an economist. So you're asking about the different types. So work that the Faraday Institution have done um, and commissioned with uh, McKinsey, I think it was, uh, is predicting that actually in the UK by 2040, on a low growth scenario, we could be manage- manufacturing about 1.1 million uh, electric vehicles in the UK. But on a high uh, scenario, uh, two million, and actually, when we see those sort of hockey stick graphs, we all get a bit cynical, right? And we're in the middle of COVID, right? So we we probably need to add everything with a bit of cynicism in terms of growth, right? Yeah. However, every time we run those numbers, they get bigger, and the reason they get bigger is is for a few reasons. Um, I think people assumed this would be a gradual, gradual shift in consumer behaviour. But people would gradually get used to electric vehicles. We'd have hybrids and we'd gradually go. And I think the crisis for climate change, um, you know, and, and Extinction Rebellion and, and uh, Greta Thunberg and that sort of social uprising really is driving regulation and policies globally. We sort of understand it. Um, and so we, we know that's increasing. So we can see this regulatory uh, challenge coming forward. If you're a car manufacturer or any sort of vehicle manufacturer, in reality, you don't make your money until quite well into uh, producing that product because they cost so much up yeah. front. Because you're being with for a new platform architecture for a car, right? Uh, and you may not start getting money back until year seven, year eight. So you've got to look a long way out in terms of deciding now what you're going to put into those cars. Um, and you can predict, you know, that the CO2 per per kilometre driven would be maybe around 67 grams at the moment. Uh, by 2030, at the moment, it's over the hundreds. And what you're then saying is, I can't use internal combustion engines to achieve that. So right here and now, I've got to be building cars that meet that limit. 
um, for Europe, okay? But actually, California has the same. China also have pretty pretty stringent limits. And, and so you're starting to see it. And, and the UK exports so much to the European Union, so we know we're going to have to comply, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a real challenge for us. But if you do that, um, if we can actually get ahead of that curve and we can manufacture here, you can see things like a 29% growth in the UK in that manufacturing sector. So you can see what that win could look like. And that's moving, that's jobs, you know, that's moving from about 170,000 people employed today um, to about 220,000 people. Right, okay. And those, Big shit. And, and those graphs are quite fundamental because actually for raw material supply, which you're mining, listeners are going to be interested in um, understanding that transition hasn't been this, it hasn't been this smooth glide path as planned. That actually the uptake. So, so last year was rubbish for sales. But if you look on the SMMT website, you'll see EVs are still doubling in terms of their popularity, and actually they're quite difficult to get hold of, long wait lists, etc. So, there is a real drive out there from the consumer to actually convert. And what I think happens is people try one. And once you've tried one, actually you realise that the range issue that you're worried about, you can manage. Yep. And the advantages of never going to a petrol station because you charge it when you get home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's, yeah, and I suppose it's going into the unknown as well because it's a new technology. And, I mean, for instance, myself, thinking about getting an electric car, I'm thinking – well, where do I charge yeah. it? How long is it charged? Say if I'm going somewhere, can't find a, uh, a station that I can actually uh, charge the car up. Just all these little doubts in your mind. Um, yeah, yeah. And so once you try it, that's the problem. You become a – and it, 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 people – if you go on Twitter, there's EV owners groups because they just love them. Yeah. So it does depend. It does depend, you know. So I don't have an EV – uh, on the basis that at the moment, I if I, my car's either on my drive because yeah. I'm at home or I'm on a train to London or somewhere, or I'm doing a long distance, right? So at the moment, I haven't got one, yeah. uh, mainly because the cost of me having one with that sort of range demand is out of a civil servant's pay at the moment. But it's coming down, yeah. right? And um, my husband has got a short commute. He has one. Got you. That probably brings me on to the next question. Um, uh, I wonder if you can tell us what the sort of UK government is actually doing, um, and in in relation to obviously the the Faraday battery challenge. Yeah, so Faraday is like two hundred and seventy four million. Um, you might see, you know, us over the next year expand again. Um, but I think um, for me, what government's really doing is this partnership piece. So I work with DEFRA. Um, so you've got to think actually, uh, electric vehicles aren't zero carbon. Right? It depends where they're manufactured and they're, intent, they're quite energy intensive to manufacture. You've got to think about uh, mining. You've got to think about all the raw materials going in. Okay, So they're not zero carbon. Yep. In fact, the efficiency of manufacturing internal combustion engines right now means when you buy them, internal combustion engines are likely to be lower carbon than a full EV. Yep. Uh, however, over the lifetime, if you're charging somewhere like the UK, then actually you suddenly drop your emissions massively. And that's where you start to get this huge advantage of electric vehicles. And you know, because you're talking to me now, that actually the supply chain for an EV is inefficient because yeah. getting lithium and cobalt and um, out of the ground, you know, at the cobalt and nickel and things like that, they're actually at the moment being produced for, for other um, yeah. elements. And actually to go to the scales we're talking about, yeah. Uh, you can see how efficiencies yeah. become. And that's without all the other commodities as well to actually build a vehicle, i.e. copper, that I think you need yeah. three or four times as much copper in electric vehicles yeah. than the old vehicles. So again, copper's in pretty short supply um, yeah. anyway, and I don't think it's nowhere near the sort of growth um, that the government or various governments around the world are predicting to get these amount of cars on the road. Uh, we're way behind the curve in terms of um, materials and minerals to actually make these to make these cars. So we're well behind the yeah. curve. So, so we've been we've been doing some work, uh, sort of. Uh, so we've been we've been getting advice in from people like the British Geological Survey, uh, and we've been having people, um, you know, bend our ear about that pinch point, those pinch points. What do they really look like? Um, and actually, there's some interesting plays in all of this. Uh, like all uh, vehicles, um, 
you'll end up with a sort of a, a supply chain solutions that come forward mm. um, through market forces. However, um, Faraday's different, right? We, we can see these pinch points. And the question is, how do we get a Team UK approach to just make ensure the UK has a better probability of success in those supply chains moving forward? Mm. And, the, and the answer is I don't entirely know, right? What I do know is we can recycle copper. I'm an extraction metallurgist. That's yeah. actually my background. Uh, not in copper, but in steel. But, um, you know, things like copper, things like cobalt, lithium, <sighs> out of a battery and now there's a challenge right so faraday spent about 20 million looking at the technologies for recycling and we will continue to do more of that um and we'll work with partners so like the foreign office for example so i was in bolivia last year um and it just really trying to understand what that piece looks like supporting our industry it's looking at you know can we work with other governments internationally on on on, on that supply, on transitioning that supply. And that's, you know, part of that is what the uh, Automotive Transformation Fund at the APC will be doing. It's not just, to be fair, around the warm materials side of things. It's also around all the components, what can we onshore, but really thinking a bit more strategically. Yeah. So there's work going on in this space. Yeah. What I can say to people out there, because I think people are always hungry for data and information. Um, as I said, if you go on the Institute's website, uh, they have an April Insight, which is a newsletter. And what they've done is to really look at a model. What, what should you be considering if you're out there in mining world um, uh, around uh, what more materials are going to be needed? Because everybody keeps changing the bar, right? Yeah. So we know that um, NMC, for example, at the moment um, is, is dominant. Uh, we predict by 2030 it's going to be even more dominant, but it'll be a lower cobalt version of that. Now, they've got the detail. What they're saying is so you need to consider things like the EV sales, uh, and what that projection's looking. And obviously with COVID, there's going to be some interesting moments in that. Um, what the mixes of chemistries look like, how that will change, how it will impact your demand. Um, and then in each of the different battery chemistries, different um, sort of material intensities uh, that are being used. So uh, there's one called lithium sulfur, for example. And instead of taking lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate, it's taking lithium metal. Okay. So understanding some of these these predictions um that's part of our job what we want to do is help you guys write business cases so um as you're making questions you know what are we doing about graphite what are we doing about aluminium because these are all in um what are we, these are all in batteries and and may not be the cell chemistries but they may well be in the infrastructure as you say the buzz bars made of copper and you're going to start to see i think more and more thought come into this uh, but yeah, don't forget we are trying to catch up on a long history of internal combustion engine manufacturing. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, um, I mean, and if we can keep yeah. if we can keep people on the front foot, that's what we're trying to do. So talk to us, ask us. You know, you can take requests, as it were, in terms of what other information you're looking for. Yeah, um, I mean, what will the sort of future battery chemist look like? Um, particularly in which chemistries will dominate, and how will the critical raw material um, intensity of each battery chemistry change um, obviously over time and obviously you mentioned there's quite a few different different uh, minerals that are needed in a battery and I suppose over time these will change as well to make it potentially more efficient. So I think what you're going to see is some of the current batteries that we have around the place um, like uh, lithium ion phosphate you'll see them sort of tailing off um, and you'll get things like uh, NMC coming to the fore, that's uh, nickel, magnesium, um, sorry, nickel, ma mag manganese, uh, um, sort of cobalt coming forward. Uh, but what you'll see is, is engineers, manufacturing engineers will always do this. If they, if they can reduce costs, they will. We talked about the upfront cost of an EV, right? Batteries make up a massive proportion, much more significant than internal combustion engines in the cost of a, of a car, right? So, if you, um, so you know you need to reduce those costs. So I think you'll see instead of NMC 622, which talks about 2% cobalt, for example, if cobalt price remains high, um, you're going to see much more of 911. You might see a 9.5.5.5. So you might start to see cobalt being reduced out of that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then you've got other chemistries as well. 
And this is, I think this, it creates this uncertainty. Okay, so, because um, people hear about sodium ion and lithium sulfur and they hear about solid state. Um, and actually, uh, all those things will change that mix to, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, what I can tell you is those forecasts and mount, if I'm working with uh, the Ministry of Defence, for example, so the defence industry, the aerospace industry, light goods vehicles, heavy goods vehicles, uh, we work with off-highway, uh, all trying to electrify, we're working with marine, right? So um, in some ways... We have to understand this landscape better and better. So what you'll see, uh, both the Advanced Propulsion Centre, the Faraday Battery Shams, UK BIC and FI working together to do is to try and help articulate that uncertainty, but against the massive prize that is this increasing demand. So, so, so it's helping people uh, justify um, business cases where you've got so much uncertainty yeah. and yet a massive prize on the table. I was going to say, I suppose you don't actually realise it's not just cars, it's probably all forms of transport that will actually go um, sort of battery-powered and ele- electrified. And, yeah, you just think everything. Um, Mining equipment. Yeah, it's, for instance. Mining yeah, yeah. equipment is one of the, uh, is up there at the front, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't even... Like it is on all autonomous vehicles, yeah. it's a set, it's a controlled environment. You don't want knock socks, PM tens, PM two point fives underground uh, for occupational health reasons. But equally, because you you don't want to, you know, you, if the more you can reduce your ventilation shafts on your mines, uh, the less impact you have, and the more likely you are to start getting yeah. permits for new mines, right? So actually, there's a there's a load of companies looking at uh, electric Tonka trucks for want of a better, better description, um, you know. And you're seeing um, people like Samvik making uh, business models out of this, selling the equipment, but leasing batteries around um, and doing that management of the batteries underground. You're seeing um, cabled electric mining vehicles underground, so you can kind of start start to see the mindset. So there's a there's a drive for CO2, but there's a benefit of air quality. Um, and if you can do, uh, if you have to ship diesel in, you know you you, you may as well set up some solar or, or other forms yeah. of wind, wind, other forms of power that can generate enough. So it depends what you're doing, um, but actually things like shipping and rail. So you are not talking many vehicles yeah. to give you a demand that's off the scale, right? Yeah. So if you're worrying about the pinch points based on automotive, it's going to be competitive. Yeah, certainly. Um, obviously, you mentioned supply chain. Um, are you looking at a sort of a, obviously a, a blockchain model or, or the government is, for instance, is that the road that you're, you're going to take? Because it seems to be blockchain seems to be slowly um, entering the mining industry um and i imagine blockchain blockchain for me has a real really great opportunity Mm. so um when we sponsor innovation for example uh we want to make sure what we're what we're designing new uh tech in is it it sustainable so we do want to know the full life cycle you know of of all uh, of all the raw materials all the way through, or the cars, what they're using. And blockchain seems a perfect way to do that because the problem you've got, right, is for every application you could have a bespoke battery chemistry. People think there's going to be one tech, you know, and I've just listed you an MC, for example. But the reality is um, you're going to have a real, um, you might get some applications that can synergize into one tech, but there's going to be a large number of differentiated products out there in the battery space. So blockchain allows you to actually share that data without sharing that data. Yeah. So um, do I think blockchain is going to pay a part? Yes, I do. And one of the reasons is, um, unlike internal combustion engines, um, electric vehicles are being sold and marketed as environmental products. Yeah. So actually, if in my supply chain um, I've got some slave labor, um, if I've got some, um, uh, I've got cells being made in a country that is 90% coal-fired and it's grid, yeah, I'm going to want to know. And actually, um, what you'll start to see is <laughs> the speed at which this is moving is very much around that climate change. So you have to yeah. really think about the end, end life. So 
you know, you're going to see some better decision making, I think, in terms of companies making sure that their supply chain is clean, that their products uh, are efficient, um, and that where you're then charging it is also uh, clean again. Because actually, you only get that cumulative, that benefit when it's all cumulative together. And technologies like blockchain are really going to be prevalent, I think, in that. Yeah. Um, partly because if I'm, if I'm spending lots of money investing in a new battery chemistry, I'm Johnson Massey. Uh, the last thing I want to do is tell you what the hell is in that when I supply um, when in your vehicle. But actually, the dismantlers at the end of life might well really need to know what the hell was in each of those cells, yeah. particularly if you mix and match. So how do they get that information without losing you competitive advantage 15 years down the line? And so we've got to really think that that um, cradle to grave sort of uh, premise and that life cycle analysis sort of thing. And part of the reason is I know that there's a there's the, the EU, for example, are already in that headspace. Yeah. They've been commissioning studies on on eco design uh, sort of approaches to EVs. Yeah. So you can't get really inefficient electric vehicles sold uh, and branded the same way as you can get really efficient ones. Yeah. Um, obviously, I want to talk now about the the supply of obviously a critical critical raw materials and obviously this is a mining podcast so obviously the majority of people that listen to this podcast are from the uh, mining background um so what's your view on the prediction that there is sort of in, insufficient reserves um sort of by the end of this decade um obviously that's only what nearly 10 years away obviously around at the start of the decade um what yeah what's your views on all the raw materials that are needed maybe not just in a battery but also in a in a car and obviously the reserves and depleting reserves um and i suppose what what the answer is i suppose it is to go out and build more mines but that doesn't happen overnight what's your views on that so so i believe you right is the first sort of thing so um i'm not from the mining industry um but you know 10 years on the steelworks just give you a bit of understanding of how things are made right um and actually what we're what we do is just initially we sort of well actually they came to speak to me was the british geological survey going hold on guys we've got an issue here right mm. um and i i guess i don't because of their counsel because they're you know incredibly useful they've sort of said that look, look it's not about the reserves necessarily it's about the fact that we don't know where more reserves could be the exploitation uh, exploration sort of piece um, and you have to understand the mining industry since 2012 has been in a in a tricky situation so um, and I know that because my brother happens to work for Rio Tinto okay. in Perth right so yeah. um, so, so we know there's these challenges right uh, and the answer is we've been really busy trying to work out how to get the UK on the front foot with the tech yeah. um, and now comes some time of working together and really understanding it um, it's for me, I guess my background makes me go, the UK has strengths in this area, right? We have the London Metals Exchange. Uh, we have areas of the UK that has be, have been extracting metals, for example, for many centuries. Um, we have places like um, the nickel refinery in Clinic, which I think is the second biggest nickel refinery in Europe. Um, we know we have things like the, the zero carbon aluminium smelter up on Lockerbie and on Ben Nevis. Um, you know, we know we, we, we can sponsor and, and work with people like British Lithium, um, uh, Cornish Lithium and others. I think I've been hearing about copper in Cornwall just to explore not only what we can do more locally on both uh, mining, but, but particularly on refining, um, but, but equally um, how we can create better uh, supply chains that are using innovation as well at their heart. Um, and so I guess uh, for me, I do believe that we need to understand where the UK is going. Uh, and I think in the next couple of years, you'll start to see it crystallise much more. Mm. So you sort of hear and hear about, you'll see more done with the Friday Institution and UK Vic. Um, sort of early days. And I, I and I know that's frustrating, actually, for people in the mining industry. Um, but the early days are really more about, you know, we're just coming into your space. Yeah. Um, and the upside of being engineers and scientists is we tend to uh, appreciate what we don't know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> better than maybe if we, yeah. we sort of thought, oh, mining simple. 
it's it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And, and how do we how do we you know uh, edge this the way the UK also mm. be successful? I mean, I'd, obviously, I, I'm in the mining industry. I'm a recruiter, um, and we've ha- have had a big. I wouldn't say necessarily recession, but it has been a big downturn over the last seven, eight years, for instance. And it's about time good things come to the mining industry. And I believe we're on the cusp of, of good times because of the electric vehicle market, because potentially where the company may be going, uh, sorry, the country or the world may be going into a recession. Um, I think mining will play a big part on how we how we actually sort of come out of that um, because mining's a log game. I mean, I do think not just mining, but refining. Yeah. Um, you know, our, our consultants, uh, our universities like um, Camborne and, and um, Exeter and others that, you know, are specialists in mining, we have this ability to join up, right, in the UK. These are big spaces, they're complex spaces, but actually um, we can work with the London Metals, Metals Exchange. We can... You know, a lot of those big companies are listed in the UK and have Anglo, um, Oz or whatever sort of routes to them. Mm. So it's how do we work together to, to get that supply chain working? And actually the, the supply, the, the sector we probably work a bit more with has been the chemicals industry. So yep. what I always hear from mining is, is, is how are you going to get these more, these metals? And I'm like, again, I don't know, who are your customers? Uh, you know, and they're like, going, well, I've got all this, I've got all this metal. And like, yeah, who are your customers? And, and that means that actually the gap there is about government working with the chemical sector, for example, to give those customers to find those ways to those mines, yeah. um, so that you can start syndicating really big projects such yeah. as mine. Yeah, so uh, that's the kind of thinking. I was going to say, is there sort of any sort of UK mining companies and refining opportunities here locally that you're potentially working with? Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we have Cornish Lithium is in our supply yep. chain, is on our sorry, in our portfolio already. They're looking at uh, new technologies for wheat grinds. You know, for me, that's. I interviewed. I, I interviewed Jeremy. Um, it's one of my first podcasts, actually. So <laughs> that was probably about uh, nearly a year and a half ago. Um, and I just recently, uh, probably a podcast or two ago from this, um, interviewed Lucy Crane as well from. Uh, Cornish Lithium. So um, she she gave us an update on what's happening with those guys, and they're they're striving forward with with what they're doing. Yeah, and my job really for me, so because I sponsor innovation, yeah, is to not just so so there's the way funding all fits together, both the private sector and the government funding. Actually, you know they they're really interesting because actually they're trying to do something new with the extraction technology. Um, we have companies like British Lithium, you know, who are working on, on clay pits, right, down in Cornwall as well. So you've got lots of bits and pieces coming together. Some of the technology they're using is also transferable, and it's transferable in different ways. So um, uh, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, when you're thinking about supply chain, Bolivia, for example, has got lithium uh, in concentration under its salt flats. Um, but actually, how do you get that country? Uh, how do you work with, with Bolivia so that it trusts you as a supply chain member um, and that it's got quality? Because don't forget, for electric vehicles, this is not cheap yep. uh, lithium carbonate or hydroxide. This is not low grade. This is high, high grade. How can you work with them so that actually they can get that economic benefit from having the innovation and technology they need? And, and so, you know, we actually... Um, Work with some of our stakeholders from being out there last year with a, with a foreign office with a British investor in the PAS, and there's £800,000 worth of projects going on there with the satellite catapults. They're using satellite technology uh, to look at mining and where's best and, and how they can manage things uh, with the British Geological Survey and actually Cambridge University. So it's really interesting work going on. So, because mining, I think you always shout at me for thinking, not thinking, you're thinking short term and you're going to run into a wall. So trying to expand that thinking, but also different ways of working, yeah. right? And all through that, um, I can tell you now that if you're buying a new I-Pace from Jaguar, Jaguar for somewhere between 70000 and £80,000, um, you're not going to want to find out that there's been child labour yeah. in there, right? But equally, you have to think really intelligently. So we also have to then go, yeah, so we'll, we won't use any cobalt from, um, from DCR, um, DRC, sorry, I always get that yeah. from DRC. Um, 
but actually a lot of that gets refined in China. Yeah. So how are you going to know it's from DCR? But also, if you do pull it from DCR, what that does is drops the price yeah. of the demand in DCR for cobalt, which actually means people that are in dire situation, you know, I mean, imagine what it takes to for you to send your child out to, to you know, as a slave labourer. Yeah. Um, actually, their conditions get worse. Yeah. So how do we work together? And actually... That's what we're sort of thinking about. And we're talking with lots of different people. So there's an organisation called PACT. Uh, we're talking to people at the Chi Climate Change Commission, really trying to be really intelligent about how we use foreign aid yep. in those supply chains, for example, to improve the life of those of people and what projects would actually really work mm. in this space. How, I mean, how, I was going to say, how can you ensure consumers that some of these materials are being responsibly sourced? Uh, for obviously the electric vehicle market. So the UK and Europe brought in the Modern Slavery Act, for example. I mean, don't get me wrong, mm. there's slaves in the UK as well. And, and yeah. you know, there's, there's, we, we have to, yeah, we have to think really logically. So the Modern Slavery Act is, is one. Um, and that brought in the requirement for companies, if you're using metals to, uh, and, and, and what, what's defined in the Act, uh, to write a statement that explains what you're using and where they're from. But actually, that's quite a, that's quite a new piece of legislation. Um, I know that Theresa May, before she left, announced additional monies to increase the audit of that. So they're starting to ramp up that regulatory requirement on it. So you can't get away. And, you know, blockchain, you know, that's another example. Of, you might see some yeah. regulatory innovation needed, yeah, so that you can follow some of the stuff through. Um, but again, you know, this is... All of this takes a real sort of joined up thinking. What I love about my job is this sense of uh, it's such a huge, overwhelming challenge. And you've got and many moving so parts many as people. well. And, and moving yeah, parts yeah. and bringing it all yeah. together on a big scale. Not just yeah. not just one small project. It's a <laughs> number. Of, gray, yeah. So many great things today. But like, um, yeah, but actually there's so many people who want to be in this space. I mean, we're really clear why we want to be here. Um, you know, we, we talk about jobs in the in the um, automotive sector or the aerospace sector or wherever, um, in the manufacturing sector in the UK, but actually we sort of try to do a bit of a calculation. If we could get that level of manufacturing in the UK, you know, you're talking huge, millions of tonnes of CO2 displaced out of the entire system, right? Um, so we know why we're here. Um and actually, we love EVs. When you get in one and you drive one, all of a sudden, you realise how much fun they are. There's a reason Tesla's going up to 60 faster than a Bugatti Rayron, and that's your lack of torque yeah. um, lag, and you, you, you've, you, you're off, right? And this technology is exciting, and it's, um, but it's important. It plays a bigger purpose that we've all really got to face up to. Yeah. Um, what's the sort of UK government doing around recycling of um, electric vehicles um, and recovering critical raw materials? And I suppose there is obviously a number of electric vehicles in any particular country. And if we're looking at just the UK, um, uh, a lot of people changing electric vehicles, i.e. having an electric vehicle for a few years and then upgrading, then what happens maybe that then gets resold, but obviously spare parts as well. So parts that are may, maybe not used. Re yeah, used again. there's a load of stuff in this, yeah. which, which is really, really interesting. So, so on an innovation front, we have, um, we do have, you know, projects going on looking at this, right? Uh, people like the Birmingham, University of Birmingham at the heart of some of that stuff. Um, but we're working alongside lots of companies in the UK. Um, what we're trying to do as well is sort of join it up a little bit. Um, because actually we know there's infrastructure that needs to come into the UK. And actually what you're already starting to see uh, are people that have, in the last 50 years, gone from manufacturing lead-acid batteries, right, for yeah. cars. Uh, that is now 100% closed-loop recycling, yeah. right? So, so they've learned how to do that for lead-acid. Um, and they can see this challenge, and you can see sort of commercial projects, kind of projects come together um, and really trying to work out what, where they would fit and the problem with recycling is you don't see your return for a fair bit, right? You don't get the volumes of EVs coming off that make you money. So there will always be some element. I suppose not at the moment. because obviously but, we were, but actually, when you look at lithium-ion, right, 
there's higher levels of cobalt in, in mobile phone batteries, for example, right? Mm. And where's, where's all the mobile phone batteries that you've had since you started having mobile phones? Still in, still in the phones. <laughs> it's yeah, still in the phone right. somewhere. How, you know, we've all got a cordless Hoover, right? Yeah. Uh, and we've all got cordless power tools. And so you can see this drive for battery tech in more than just electric vehicles. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's things like the battery. So, so they're very, there's very regulated space, but this is an element that regulation is looking to catch up on. So you can't put them in landfill. It's illegal to put them in landfill. There will be some leakage into landfill by people chucking their mobile phone in the bin. But actually, on the whole, um, they are regulated already for that. Um, if you're a car company like Nissan or, or Toyota are two good examples, so they put electric vehicles, be it hybrid and a, and a full electric and a leaf, uh, out early. And actually, after eight years, nine years, ten years, they're seeing them come to their end of life. So what do you then do? And actually, at the moment, Nissan have big programs on, in place looking at what they can do with end-of-life vehicle batteries. Firstly, what they're seeing is um, their engineering of an eight-year-life uh, eight life on their batteries uh, hasn't completely succeeded. You can, you can have a decent um, car that still motors uh, with, with a battery that's well over eight years old, right? Um, so they know that the tech is, is achieving the lifespan. Uh, and what they're really doing is looking at how, they, how, can, how they, can they understand what that life uh, has been for that battery, how safe that battery is, how they can repurpose it, how they can remanufacture it into something else, how they can guarantee that and therefore have warranties on new products. And it could be a battery in your home, for example, or it could be um, into an industrial application or it could be into static storage. Um, not possibly less likely into full-scale sort of grid storage because actually um, the elements in, in a car battery are so such high grade. It's almost like you'd be over-egging it for, for – and there's different technologies for static storage. But there's still opportunities there, right? So there's a load of thinking going on in this space. And sometimes it's not really about the answer. It's about how you're building the knowledge to get to the answer. Yeah. So we are working with um, – the British Standards Institute to try and get some codes of practice together for how you design cars. Because as always, as it always was with uh, petrol and, and diesel, right, you have explosive uh, liquids, you know, we're all quite happy driving around with a massive bomb underneath us in an internal combustion engine in the yeah. fuel tank. Um, and so when, that, when cars first came forward, those fuel tanks were incredibly over-engineered for safety. Um, and over years, they've understood that element better, that risk better, that design better, and, and narrowed that down. And at the moment, you've got the same sort of thing going on with, it, with batteries. You know, there's actually dismantling them is very difficult. And the reason it's very difficult is because they're high-voltage live systems. They are not something um, you want anybody who isn't high-voltage live qualified uh, in a... Yeah, yeah touching, because you can't switch them off. Uh, and they have voltages that make, you know house voltages look like <laughs> yeah. you know these are these are big big uh electric shops that you're, you're electric systems you can't get dave down the road to come in and just uh just start mucking about thinking that the handyman can actually do do things with it no, but, dave, but yeah. the, the point is dave down the road has a job right he has, yeah. a, he has a uh it might be a small business it might be a part of a big business they have they're making money and there's a there's a business case in here so we have to think about well if we can design them better then maybe dave can if we can bring some skills uh work in you know that we can have some standards and some training and other bits and pieces so you can see in the faraday mission um some of it is about how we work to bring that forward so actually dave and you know uh, darren actually in my case my, my <laughs> garage how darren can actually be not only qualified, certified, and remain safe mm. if he's doing work on electrical electric vehicles or, or hybrid systems. Uh, and a lot of that is around how you um, can work together as an industry. So if there's any space that government should sit in, quite often it's that one. How do you get the industries to work together? And it's the same really on the recycling because if we can work with the, the materials sector and the chemical sector around how, how you can get... Uh, uh, the materials back out of batteries so that they can either go back into you know prime battery 
um, applications or other applications in manufacturing so that there isn't a loss of these these important critical materials for us, um, then we're, we're sort of doing our job. Hmm. Okay. Um, I want to slowly wrap this up now. So I've got uh, sort of my one last question. Um, what do you think the impact of uh, COVID-19, which obviously at the time of this recording, um, we're probably two or three weeks into a, into this uh, lockdown, or I've, I've been in lockdown for three weeks. Um, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think the impact of uh, COVID-19 will be on sort of raw materials um, supply for the electric vehicles and how much, and obviously the time we get out of this, which who knows what, when that will be, how much, and obviously I think we're behind the, the curve anyway with this, how much delay do you think this will be and how, what other impacts would you say this COVID-19, this lockdown, for instance, will have an effect on, on what you're doing and also obviously the, the battery market as a, as a overall. Okay. So what, I'll tell you what, Rob, why don't we start with, you know, for all those out there, I hope you're safe and well. Yeah. Uh, and, if, and, and, you know, deeper sympathy is incredibly upsetting watching the news at the moment. Um, what do I think? I think there's an interesting moment going on in the middle of this crisis it is a global crisis, right? Um, and what we're seeing is a need to work together. Um, when we have ever had the financial downturn in 2018, right? Uh, 2018 was great for the environment. Things got shut off and, and, and closed down. 2019, 9, 9, 10, and 11 weren't great for the environment, right? Uh, com- uh, governments invested and companies invested in... in um, in technologies just to get them back up and running. Uh, but what you're doing at the moment in, in COVID-19 is you've effectively reduced transport to absolute essential levels, right? Um, I'm sat here, there's no, there's no uh, planes in the sky above me that's normally planes in the sky above me. Uh, there's no car noise, I've normally got car noise from a road nearby. And you're kind of going, right, so, so we've got this almost global experiment going on. Uh, and we're seeing it because people are sharing knocks and socks and one well, yeah. data in particular. Um, and we can see CO2 is going to be a really interesting, it might be the first time in history that CO2 levels actually go down. They can't guarantee that, yeah. but they might actually. And so what this does is give you evidence and data. So we kind of do know that we can do something. Um, recently, I saw a report showing that the hole in the ozone layer is getting smaller. So we'd all that there'd been reports about uh, CFCs in China creating, making it bigger again. But actually, whatever was going on there has been. So when we work together, we do know we can fix some of these things. So what do I think the impacts are? I think it's going to be really challenging economically. Um, what I think is coming into it. I, what I hope, maybe this is a hope. What I hope is going to happen is there's going to be a stark. Uh, clarity over what the hell we need to do to save this planet and actually as we're sat at home or we're furloughed actually governments investing more in electrification for example uh, I think there's going to be minimal air transport in the short term maybe less in the medium term and who knows what it will look like in the long term Um, and, and for me electrification batteries fuel cells static storage um you know the technologies we need to upgrade our houses away from gas um uh you can sort of see how that hopefully will keep that clarity of direction um what i know it means for me in the short term is that i have an industry that's in which has real pain um and we're doing everything we can with the companies that we've sponsored um because it's taxpayers' money that we've invested into this hmm. to keep them going and, and you know help them either hibernate or get through this um, lockdown period. But actually, for me, it's actually how do we make sure that the aluminium of Lockerbus, the smelter, for example, um, is really valued because of its its, its zero you know uh, um, CO2 emissions because of hydropower. How do we really start to embed that thinking? Um, and I do think it will come. I think there is something about how, how the real um, values as humanity sort of come out on this, right? So 
we talk about, and, and you see it often in the press actually about EVs are, are bad and actually blah, blah, blah. And, and are they really better than internal combustion engines? Because internal combustion engines are so, uh, so efficient. And the answer is um, whatever you do, you have to c- compare it to emissions from internal combustion engines, right? The devastation in parts of the world, um, even in the UK from flooding and other sort of elements, we know this is happening. And the stark reality is there's a few small changes uh, in our behaviours could drive, you know, a much more secure future for our kids and our grandchildren. So we have to kind of think like that. So, yeah, I I can't predict the actual impact on mining or anything else. What, What I can tell you is there's a team of us working across government damn hard to make sure that electrification and batteries will remain high on the political agenda. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's the case. I think that obviously most governments around the world are committed to to this and have battery, uh, battery electrical type vehicles as opposed to combustion engines. I think everyone is for it, but I think it's tuck putting your toe into the water and I think that's going to be a slowly graduation when someone will if they're going out to get a new car whether even it's a brand new car or a second hand car when that tipping point is when are they actually going to buy and move over from obviously a petrol diesel car over to an electric car yeah. it's it's I agree we, we sort of saw it as a progression uh, uh, you know the early adopters and the laggards and everything else and um, I, I came off stage at, after giving one of these um, talks and um, this Norwegian guy came up to me and said I, I loved your presentation but I disagree with you about your predictions and I said oh yeah. uh, you know you thought they were over egging it and he's like no I come from Norway uh, the, the speed of the transition is spectacular. Mm. We cannot get the cars we need uh, to go full electric in Norway. So you find people traveling dis- great distances to go and get that full electric to drive it uh, so they can own it. it. Now, there's been tax relief and other reasons why in Norway that, that really works for them. They said, but actually once people drive them, uh, because once you've got numbers, the infrastructure comes, you were texting about charge points, for example, mm-hmm. um, and you're starting to see companies like BP and Shell really pick up into this space. They they are very, very good at making money out of four courts. There's no reason they shouldn't continue to do that. Um, but they know that actually those charge master points, for example, in BP, uh, they're going to be a real strategic uh, play for them in the future. But you need certain more EVs on, on the road to do that. And then you have this issue about the urban areas and what to do there. And I think that's where you start to see actually the electrification of trains, electrification of buses, uh, the electrification of all the transport, um, understanding more about air quality and vehicles that, are, that create pollution is also really important. I just think, yeah, I think we might be surprised if we sat back down again in five years' time, uh, Rob. We might be in a different world. Yeah, certainly will, certainly will. And uh, yeah, our, this podcast hopefully will still be going in five years' time. So uh, yeah, we have to revisit revisit back in twenty twenty five, which is. Uh, oh, I tell you what, one thing I do promise you. Yeah. We'll still, we'll still be doing it online, even if we can, uh, even if we can travel. Yeah, yeah, certainly. It's not been too bad, has it? No, it hasn't. It hasn't. I mean, this is the first time I've actually done a a, a sort of full video. I, I generally do these podcasts over Skype, um, and sometimes I ask the guests whether they, they want to do an actual video or just want to do it audio. Uh, a lot of them just prefer the audio version. Uh, but from now on, I'm actually going to, if I'm doing it via, uh, obviously, the internet, I'm actually going to do it via video, um, and I'm going to put all these on to... Uh, onto YouTube as well. So you can actually see me in person, actually see me conducting these uh, podcasts. Some people may be interested, some people may be not, but that's uh, that's their preference. So um, really pretty- Well, let me know if you want anyone to talk in more detail about the different batteries and- Yeah, yeah, and certainly, certainly will do. I'll, um, I'll come back to you on that definitely. And we can speak probably when we're out of this uh, lockdown, um, yeah. if two, three, four months time and yeah, get a different perspective then. So really appreciate your time, Jackie, and uh, explaining mm-hmm. obviously the, the Faraday battery challenge, what, what the UK are doing around, uh, obviously around battery technology and how, what advances you're looking to do. So um, um, obviously majority of these guys 
on the uh, listening to this podcast or from the mining industry, um, which I, like I said, I think it's going to start to pick up um, or hopefully it's going to start picking up. Um, and obviously a lot of more more raw materials that's going to be used in in the growth of the battery industry so it's going to be good for you and it's obviously going to be good for the mining industry so um if anyone wants to reach out to you um how can they go about doing that and uh, are you actually on any social media platforms and if you can i am i'm very much on linkedin uh, and twitter so okay. um linkedin is jackie murray obviously a Faraday battery challenge in innovate uk uh twitter my is at jackie spelt funny J-A-C-Q-U-I, Murray, 25. Yeah. Find me. And you mentioned, obviously, the, the Faraday Battery Challenge. What's the full email address uh, or web address, shall I say, so people can have a look at that? So it's on, it's on .gov. So actually, if you, if you type in Faraday Battery Challenge, it will come up. Yeah. Um, uh, there is an email address, which is Challenge at innovateuk.ukri.org. Okay. Uh, that's a bit of a long one, but... Either way, you'll, you'll find our, yeah. our contact details. Yeah, no worries. Um, and if you've got any, if the audience got any questions, you can also email myself, um, and I can pass any messages on to uh, Jackie. My email address is rob at mining-international.org. Um, really appreciate your time, um, in obviously uh, telling us about uh, obviously about batteries and the, the future. Um, if any of the audience um, is listening to this and feels that anyone could benefit from listening to this podcast appreciate if you could uh, pass it on to them share the link um uh, actually get them to go to the website as well because all these podcasts go on to uh, the um the podcast website which is www.digdeeptheminingpodcast.com where all the episodes that we've done so far which is i think 70 plus uh, are on there go out every thursday so um yeah please share this uh, podcast amongst people that you feel would benefit from this and uh, would be interested in obviously let the electric vehicle market. Um, so I appreciate your time for listening. Um, please stay safe when, whenever you're listening to this. Um, I take it the COVID-19 will still be about when this actually gets released. So um, yeah, please stay safe and take care. Um, and until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.